So we are in the middle of Sukkot, this beautiful, beautiful holiday, the holiday where we get a hug from God. Every moment that we spend in the sukkah is a mitzvah. And so uh, we're experiencing and, and, and loving this holiday. As the holiday comes to a close, there are uh, there's the last day. So there are two festivals in the holiday, one after another. The last day of Sukkot is called Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshana Rabbah is a uh, is a is is, an, is a holiday that a lot of people don't know very well. Um, didn't get it. It didn't get a great a great uh, a rap. I'll tell you. So what's interesting is like this. It's the seventh day of Sukkot. It's called Hoshana Rabbah, and it's considered the final day of divine judgment. It's actually considered the day in which the fate of the new year is determined. It's the day when the verdict that was issued on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur is finalized. So the Midrash tells a fascinating story that God told Abraham, if atonement is not granted to your children on Rosh Hashanah, I will grant it on Yom Kippur. And if they don't attain atonement on Yom Kippur, I'll give it on Hoshana Rabbah. So it became, though it's not known, it's a very, very important holiday. And I'm sure somebody always tells me this joke that they say, Rabbi, you always say that whatever holiday is, it's the most important holiday. Maybe it's true, but it is the most important holiday because it's the one that's happening tonight. But it really is very important. So this this day of Hoshana Rabbah, the final day of Sukkot, the judgment is finalized. And we have the ability to kind of think, process, and allow, allow ourselves to kind of the last chance, let's say, of the of the high holidays. It's the last moment. Now, the the primary observance of Hoshana Rabbah is taking a, a willow. So, in addition to the fact that every single day of Sukkot we take an etrog, a lulav, a hadasim, the myrtle, and the willow, the four species, and we wave them together, there's a tradition that dates back to the times of the prophets, to take an additional willow branch on the seventh day of Sukkot. And what this does is it commemorates the willow ceremony in the Holy Temple, where there was uh, a large 18-foot willow branches were set around the altar every day of Sukkot. And every day of Sukkot, the altar was circled once. And there was a prayer for divine assistance. On Oshana Rabbah, the altar was circled seven times. So that is, it is, it is, uh, we, we, we call it Hoshainot, where we circle the altar today in commemoration. We, we circle the Bima in the synagogue once for this, every day for the seven days. And on the seventh day, 
which will be tomorrow morning, we circled the beam on the synagogue seven times. Today, during the course of this Hoshana Rabbah service in the Torah, all of the Torahs are taken out of the Ark. Um, they're held by people standing around the Bima. It's considered a, a solemn, a, a, a very special day. And the people will make seven circles around the Bima while holding their four species, their Etrog and their Lulav and their Hadassim and Arabot, while reciting the Hoshainot prayers, these very special prayers. And at the conclusion of that prayer, they take a bundle, we take a bundle of, of five willows, and we hit it on the ground five times. And what it does is it symbolizes the tempering of the five measures of harshness. And it's customary for, for all uh, people, men, women, children, even small children, to do this ritual. And the tradition is not to use the willow from your four species, but to take five willow branches and to uh, hit it against the ground. There's also a tradition on Ashana Rabbah to learn all to learn during the night. Uh, we finish the entire book of Devarim of Deuteronomy in the synagogue, and uh, there's also a tradition of uh, of giving out honey cake. People and you're supposed to ask. For honey cake, so that this is the last time you have to ask for anything this year. There's many, many traditions that are associated with this particular holiday, as it's considered the last day of Sukkot. Then, right afterwards, the next day, we start another another holiday. Now, this holiday again coincides with Sukkot and Hoshana Rabbah. But it is a completely different holiday. It's not the eighth day of Sukkot. It is called Shemini Atzeret. What is Shemini Atzeret? It literally means the eighth day of the holiday, but it's the the a different holiday. So during um, this day, for those of you uh, who say Yisker, there's Yisker that is said. And uh, it is considered its own holiday. Uh, the The origin of it is um, literally, again, the eighth day. And it's from the verse in the Torah that says that after the seven days of Sukkot, it says, on the eighth day, a stop, it shall be for you. That's what it says. And so during, it was a, there was a very special holiday. And in now, what's fascinating about this holiday is in Israel, in the land of Israel, where the holidays are one day, both Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah are celebrated together. Where out of the land of Israel, they are separated as two separate holidays, Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah, though there's a lot of similarities between, between the two. But I think what I'd like to do um, today is I want to go a little bit into Hoshana Rabbah and talk about the willow, the power of the willow, and I want to also go into Simchat Torah and talk about the power of Simchat Torah. So, the willow branch, it's a fascinating... Sometimes I think, like, how do you explain Jewish holidays to people who don't know? We're going to go into a hut, 
And we're going to take these things and we're going to wave them around. And yeah, it's just, yeah. I mean, you know, we're crazy. So it's not, not surprising. So there, there are, are four species that we use on Sukkot. The, the, the most beautiful, it's called pre-Eitz Hadar in the Torah. A, a beautiful fruit is called the Etrog. It's not a lemon. It is an ancient fruit, possibly the oldest fruit. According to some opinions, actually, it was the fruit that Adam and Eve took from the Garden, from, in the garden of Eden. There was a, a bunch of different opinions, a grape, a fig, a date. But uh, it could have been an Etrog. It's an old fruit. What's amazing is if you've had an etrog in your life, it doesn't rot. It just shrivels up. That's how ancient it is. It cannot be grafted. It cannot be changed. Otherwise, it's not an etrog. So the etrog growers uh, are very, very careful to make sure that it has really stayed. And all these many centuries later, we still have really pure etrogs. They are usually sourced, at least in our days, they're sourced from three places. They are sourced from um, from Israel, but that's only a new phenomenon because we didn't always have the ability to source it from Israel. They are sourced uh, from Morocco. Morocco has a quite a nice etro-growing tradition uh, from the Sephardic community for past many hundreds of years. And um, the, 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 the creme de la creme of etrogs is sourced from Calabria in Italy, in southern Italy. The etrog is a fruit that is both has a good taste and a good smell. The, the lulav is a palm branch, a, a date palm branch. The, the, by the way, the best lulavs come from uh, Egypt, just random. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can get from other places also, but the Egyptian lulavs, I think it's beautiful that we... That, that we're able to take. We left Egypt, but we're able to take the Egyptian lulav and, and make a blessing on it. The date palm is a date tree. What's unique about the date tree is that the date has a fantastic taste, but dates don't smell. So we have the etrog that has a fantastic taste and a fantastic smell. The date palm that has a fantastic taste, but no smell. The hadassim, which is the myrtle, has a great smell, but no taste because it's a leaf. You see where I'm going with this? And then we have the willow. The willow has no taste and no smell. What is the nature of the willow branch? It seems to be the one of the four species that's kind of left out of the conversation. Because, oh, the etrog, how beautiful. Taste and smell. Even the date palm, beautiful, straight. You need to have a nice lulav that's straight. The myrtle, mm, beautiful smell. People put it in there. My wife uh, uh, made a, some arrangements for our sukkah, some flower arrangements in our sukkah, and she put little myrtle branches in them because they smell so wonderful, and the whole sukkah smells like myrtle. But darava, no smell, no taste. What's interesting is for those of us who live in North America or in any northern climate, that's the only one that grows in our climate. And so I think it gets a bad rap, but perhaps we need to give it a better rap. <laughs> so the, the sages explained that the four species represent four different types of people. 
the etrog with the good taste and the good smell represents someone who possesses both Torah learning and the performance of a mitzvah. The lulav, the palm branch, which has a good taste, but from the dates, but no smell, represents someone who possesses Torah learning, but not the performance of a mitzvah. The myrtle, having a good smell and, and no taste, see where I'm going, who represents someone that, re- that performs the mitzvot, but no Torah learning, and the aravot has neither, represents someone who lacks both Torah study and the performance of good deeds and the performance of mitzvot. Now, when you consider everything that God placed in this world was placed for our benefit, there are three categories. There are things which are sweet and pleasant. There are things which are good. And there are things which are not only good, but intrinsically beneficial or health healthful. So when it comes to the physical realm, sweet and pleasant is considered the lowest level. Good is considered the middle level, and beneficial or healthful is considered the, the, the most praiseworthy. For example, um, a, a person who is spiritually sensitive, when they choose foods they're going to eat, they're going to make a decision based on what is healthy, what is healthy for the body. And that which will provide that person with the maximum advantage in their spiritual pursuit, in their godly service. And even this is true when the beneficial food is not so tasty and doesn't make an enjoyable meal. But when it comes to spiritual matters, I would say the case is reversed. And the considerations are exactly the opposite. If you're dedicated to God's service, to engage in God's service because it's healthy or it's beneficial, is like, as the Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our father says, it's like serving the master in order to receive a reward. That's considered the lowest level, according to the Mishnah. Above this is a level that is of good. So sometimes you serve God knowing that it's good and it's right. And you don't know what the risk or the consequences are of going against God's will. We don't always know, oh, if I do, if I do this, what's really going to happen? And eh, no one will see it. This is not the ultimate or it's not the purest way to serve God. Since there is an ulterior motive in what we do. The ultimate level of of serving God is when we do it solely in order to fulfill the mitzvah or to fulfill the Torah's obligation, whether or not we understand the mitzvah. Even if the mitzvah has uh, no taste or no smell, which, what does that mean? I translate that as the mitzvah doesn't have any personal satisfaction. So from, even though it doesn't have personal satisfaction, 
we are showered with divine benevolence. We're, we're blessed with the great sweetness and the pleasantness in our service, which before was unattainable. We call this a spiritual sweetness. Um, we call in Hebrew, it's, 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 it's arevus, which means higher than good or healthy. It's this pure essence, arevus. If you think about what that word is, arava, arevut. The idea of aravot comes from the word arev, which means sweet or pleasant. The lowly arava, according to Kabbalah, which has no taste, which has no smell in the physical world, ends up being the most prominent of all the species, that we take it alone on Hoshana Rabbah. We take the five of them alone. We don't, the other ones, the only way we can do the mitzvah is by having them together. But on Hoshana Rabbah, we take the willow alone. And with the willow in our hands, we're elevated along with the willow as we refine our service until we, like the willow, are capable of serving God in a pure, unadulterated way without ulterior motive. It's the willow with no taste and no smell that's able to serve God in a very different way without any ulterior motive. That is the highest level. It has no no. No other thing, oh, you can say, oh, I'm beautiful because I'm this, or I'm great because I'm this. No, I am here just just for the sake of the higher power, just for the sake of the divine. The, the Arava also represents an aspect of Aaron, uh, the high priest, who was an expert at making peace between people who were at odds with each other. When he spotted two people quarreling, this was his... Uh, superpower. He chose the the opportune moments when he would approach he would approach the two people quarreling and speak to them and befriend them. And if the person would think, "Ah, oh, Aaron is the high priest. Aaron is the 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 royalty of the Jewish people, and he's befriending me. Why does he need me for a friend?" If he knew what type of person I really was, he would have nothing to do with me at that moment. The person, because Aaron befriended him, would resolve in their heart to do Teshuvah, to be worthy of calling the high priest his friend. The sukkah, and we spoke about this last week, is symbolic of the clouds of glory. The clouds of glory accompanied and protected the Jewish people, the children of Israel in the desert. Therefore, at Sukkot, the holiday is intrinsically linked to Aaron. And we also incorporate the Arava, this willow, into our prayer. At the beginning of the festival, the Arava is taken each day, and we bind it together with the other species. This way, the person without the smell or the taste can be influenced by those who already are on a higher spiritual level. And they can become elevated through their contact with him. On the other hand, someone who has a smell and a taste, when they come in contact with the willow without a smell and a taste, they're going to remind, they're going to be reminded of the inherent lowliness of the human. And they'll be seized by the waves of humility. And so what the willow represents 
to the person who has the smell and taste or has a taste without smell or has a smell without taste is the humility. The willow represents humility. As a person perfects their personal humility, God at the same time raises them up. This is the power of Hoshana Rabbah. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. The, the Torah says, one who brings a, a burnt offering earns the reward of the burnt offering. One who brings a meal offering earns the reward of the meal offering. But one who is humble, humble, humility, is considered as if they brought all the sacrifices. King David writes in, in Tehillim, a, a contrite and an humble spirit is a sacrifice to God. God does not ignore a broken heart. You can't invent a broken heart. A broken heart is a broken heart, but God does not ignore a broken heart. The, the, the lowly willow, by way of its true humility, by way of its willingness to be influenced for the better by the other species, it has the ability to be elevated higher. Until it serves God alone. And this is the purpose of this beautiful holiday of Hashanah Rabbah. When, when we, in our exalted spiritual state, on this holiday of Hashanah Rabbah, when we really feel that we are children of the King, there's no request that's too much. And then, without embarrassment, we can ask for anything including the ultimate request, a world that is that is filled with peace, that is filled with the knowledge of God as the earth is covered with water. Then, at that moment, we can move to the next holiday, the holiday of Shmini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. What is Simchat Torah? It's the, it's the dessert. It's the dessert. And Simchat Torah what are we doing? We're rejoicing with the Torah. Now, during the year, during the year, if you want to interact with the Torah, the Torah, think about what the Torah is. Everything we just spoke about is Torah. We are interacting this morning with the Torah. We are doing it in an intellectual way. It's the ultimate intelligence. But what if you don't understand Hebrew? What if 
you don't have that intelligence. What if everything I just said just went so over your head and you're like, I can't connect to the Torah. And there are days, and I'm sure there are moments, I can tell you I have those moments where I'm like, I don't get it. And so some days we have good moments and some days we have bad moments, but that's the the nature of intellectual pursuit. But what if we realize that our connection is beyond the intellectual, that our connection to the Torah, we don't have to open it. All we have to do is dance with it. That's all we have to do. When we dance with the Torah, when we take them out and dance with the Torah, we are able to connect to the Torah without intellectual pursuit. I want to just go a little Kabbalistic on you today with this. Because to understand Simchat Torah, we have to understand the nature of our divine service. You see, in the days before Simchat Torah, throughout the month of Tishrei, there are contrasting opposites. For example, the day before Simchat Torah, outside of Israel, right? We said in Israel they're together, but outside of Israel is, this, is going to be, this will be this year on Friday night and Saturday, is called Shmini Atzeret. Shmini means eight. Eight is a very important Kabbalistic number. There are 10 sefirot, and if you view them as a linear continuum with one above the other, the, the eighth, the eighth, which means when counted from below to above, because that's how we look at the world, not above to below. We look at it from this world moving upwards. The eighth, the sefirah, you ready for this, Jill? Is bina. Now, bina is translated as, as often as understanding, but it manifests the, the epitome of broadness, of expansion. It's shmini, this idea of eight, it's, it, it's the idea of an object's essence or gist. It's derived from the three-letter Hebrew word, Hebrew word shmini, for the, re, the residue fat or the essence like a, a kernel that symbolizes an aspect of divinity, which is above intellect and will. The integral relationship that exists between Shmini Atzeret and the seven days of Sukkot, it serves as a protector over them. Bina, the eighth day, watches over the seven days. And it's, and it, it's called actually the mother as it, it says in Deuteronomy that the mother sits on sits sits upon and watches her children. It's called the Ima. The Bina is the is the mother in Kabbalistic terminology. And it guards over the lower seven emotive and action attributes. So the the seven day, the seven day sukkah period is compared to the seven day feast, which a king serves subjects but on the eighth day he says to his dearest friends come and take a meal and you and i together so on the eighth day we have a different relationship with god the seven days we're going through the process of the seven and i know i'm going through this very quickly but i just want to give you an idea of it we we're going through the process of the sefirot but what happens on the eighth day 
On the eighth day, we see it very different. We can, we, we can see it beyond the process, beyond the rest of the days. We're, we're able to see the eighth day as the bina, as the process, as the understanding. I'll explain it this way. Let's go back to Rosh Hashanah. When we sounded the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, at that moment, God chooses us. And according to Kabbalah, God's free choice originates from a realm that is above and uh, abstracted from everything. God says to Moses in, in Exodus, in Shemot, for the entire world is mine. That, that, that God's choice to choose us, when, when you choose something, it is picked from objects which are of comparative value. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to make a choice. So the fact that God chooses us on Rosh Hashanah means that there's a free choice, the same way that we have free choice. The origin of our free choice is God's free choice. It's in the realm which is absolutely above, that's exalted, even preceding the Torah and the mitzvot. It's elevated above every imaginable, imaginable dimension, every imaginable characteristic and measure. So on Rosh Hashanah, the most sublime of aspects descends into the Jewish people. That's why what happens is we have no choice. What happens when you're chosen by God? It's like the king. It's like the people who were befriended by Aaron. Who am I to be befriended by Aaron? Who am I to be chosen by God? That creates repentance. That creates teshuvah. So we go through that whole process of being chosen. But, you know, people say, oh, chosen, chosen, choose someone else. What's this chosenness? It's, it, it, it inspires us to change. Because the idea of teshuva is higher than the Torah. It's higher than the mitzvot. It has the power to rectify spiritual blemishes that are created by transgressions. And God reveals to us the intrinsic connection, the essence that is beyond any form of description. And what that does is empowers us to accomplish the impossible. In essence, is something that is standing alone unto itself. It's abstracted above definitions. It's drawn down into matters of expansion and breath and bina. So through the month of Tishrei that we're about to come to a close, all these wonderful holidays, we are creating simultaneous revelation of opposites. We, we started off with this thing that's beyond us. Then we go into this idea of Bina. What is Bina? We then internalize it and we start piecing it apart. The breath, the width, the sukkah. The sukkah is the breath and the width. And now, now we have the dessert. We can appreciate the secret of Simchat Torah. What the honor that, of the Torah by, by dancing. What, what is this dancing? 
This joy is expressed by dance, by melodies. Both are which beyond, they're beyond the scope of letters. The Torah, for the whole year, besides this day, is about study. It's about comprehension, understanding exactly what we're doing here. But now that we we experience the Bina, the Torah now incorporates dual aspects. The Talmud says that there are differing opinions. One says, these are the words of the living God, Elohim. The Zohar identifies the living Elohim as Bina. The Torah corresponds to Bina, obviously, because that's what we do the rest of the year. The rest of the year, besides Simchat Torah, we are experiencing, piecing it apart, working through it, trying to understand the Torah. But there's a higher name. There's a higher level. The level of, of Abaya, of, of the level of Havaya, of the Tetragrammaton. King David says God is with him. The Talmud says that the Torah ruling follows his opinion. The comprehension and understanding alone are, are insufficient to pronounce legal rulings. But self-nullification, humility, that's what's required. There's no way that we can understand something that's above our comprehension. We don't know what is infinite. That's why we call it the infinite. It's just not finite. Because we don't know what's above our comprehension. And so, at some point, we have to realize we have limitations. Now, we have two choices when we realize the limitations of our understanding. When the Bina really happens and we can get the limitations of our understanding, we have two choices at that moment. Choice one is to become depressed. I'll never understand this. Rabbi, this is wonderful ideas. It's so beyond me. It's so beyond me. You're talking gibberish to me. You might as well just speak in Chinese because I don't think I'll ever learn Mandarin. Mandarin is a very difficult language to learn. So if you've spoken Mandarin, at least I'll know that I don't understand it. Here you're speaking in English. I have no idea what you're saying. It's beyond me. And that's what Simchas Torah does. It says, oh, Bina, the Torah is beyond you. Don't worry. You want to reach that infinite. You want to reach what's beyond you. You want to see God in a different way? Dance. Close the Torah. Hold the Torah in your embrace and dance. That is the power of the Torah that is beyond understanding. This is connecting to the essence, to God. The greatest thing that we can have if you want to have humility, and through humility you want to understand, there's something greater. And that is joy. Through dancing with the Torah, we cause the Torah to obtain happiness. And by dancing, we become the Torah's feet. And for the rest of the year, our Torah footwork is displayed by establishing fixed times for the study of Torah. But for one day a year, our job is to dance with it. Don't look at it. Don't explain it. Don't rationalize it. Don't try to comprehend it. Allow your soul to experience something higher. The joy. 
And God gives us this gift. I call it the dessert at the end of this beautiful holiday, the dessert of Simchat Torah. And that, that is when all the blessings come into fruition. Not when we're in Bina, not when we're trying to understand, but rather, but rather when we are able to not understand and just ex- experience it for what it truly is, the item itself, the Torah, the gift that we were given. When we can experience the Torah that way, when we look at it that way, when we dance with it, then we become the Torah's feet. And then we're the rest of the year, we're able to appreciate, love, and experience the Torah on another level. And that is Hoshana Rabbah, Shemini Atzeret, and Simchat Torah all together in one happy, beautiful thing. And at the end of Simchat Torah, we say, Yaakov holach ledarko. And, and Jacob went on his way. It's the first in the Torah. If somebody made a song about it. It's called Hit the Road, Jack. And that's when we move our way out of all these beautiful holidays into the year. We take the energy. We encapsulate it within us. And we really move through it. And God shall bless us with all these beautiful blessings. The blessings that are used from the entire month of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, into Sukkot, into Oshana Rabbah, into Shemini Yatzeret, into Simchat Torah. And these blessings shall last us the entire year until, please God, we come back and do it all over again next year. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.